0: This hearing of the Subcommittee on Commodity Exchanges, Energy and Credit, entitled A Look at the Renewable Economy in Rural America, will come to order. Welcome uh, and thank you all uh, for joining today's hearing. After brief uh, opening remarks, members will receive uh, testimony from our witnesses today and then the hearing will open uh, to questions. Members will be recognized in order of seniority alternating between majority and minority members in an order of arrival for those members who have joined us after the hearing was called to order. When you are recognized, you will be asked uh, to unmute your microphone and will have five minutes to ask your questions or make a comment. If you are not speaking, I ask that you remain muted in order to minimize background noise in order to get as many questions as possible. The timer will stay consistently visible on your screen. Uh, In consultation with the ranking member and pursuant to Rule 11E, I want to make members of the subcommittee aware that other members of the full committee may join us today. Uh, Good morning uh, and thank you all for joining us today. We are here to talk about the renewable economy in rural America. From the agricultural commodities used to produce biofuels or bio based products to the land use to the land used for wind and solar projects and efficiency, increasing technologies like anaerobic digesters, rural communities are integral to the future of rural, sorry, renewable energy. And as long as we have the right policies and supports in place, these communities stand to benefit greatly. Renewable technologies and processes, processes continue to develop and improve as they do. It's important that Congress ensure federal programs and incentives are effective and impactful for rural communities transitioning to renewable energy. In today's hearing, we will hear about the latest developments in the renewable economy, challenges that need to be addressed, and how rural America can continue to benefit from its growth. While creating more business and economic opportunities for rural areas, it is an important focus of today's hearing is an important focus of today's hearing. We cannot forget that residential energy affordability is still a real problem in rural America. Inefficient and outdated energy infrastructure means more costly energy bills for rural residents. We've seen a slower transition to renewable energy, as it is often proves too costly without outside support or incentives. Our panel of witnesses will touch on all of these issues, the status of the biofuels and bio based product industry and the financing, construction and crafting of renewable energy projects that benefit rural communities. While the focus of our hearing is on the benefits strategic investments in the renewable economy provide rural America, The growth of this industry stands to have a substantial impact on the national and global economy, with some experts estimating the direct economic impact of bio-based products, services, and processes at up to $4 trillion per year globally in over the next 10 years. Furthermore, the growth of the domestic renewable economy helps secure America's energy future, reducing our reliance on petroleum imports and making the best use of our domestic Resources. The topic of today's hearing is dynamic, multifaceted, and timely. And as the House Agriculture Committee begins work on the next farm bill, the discussion we have here today will be informative to that process. With that, I now like to welcome the distinguished ranking member, uh, the gentlewoman from Minnesota, Mrs. Fishbach, uh, for any opening remarks she would like to give.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you for the opportunity, and good morning to everyone. I want to thank you all for taking the time to be here today, and like uh, many of my colleagues, I uh, represent a rural ag-based district. We are among the top ag-producing districts in the nation, and we are responsible for nearly half of Minnesota's agricultural sales. Minnesota and my district also play a key role in renewable energy. Minnesota farmers care deeply about the conversation and the environment and uh, and our innovators in that area being the first state to implement e10 and the b20 mandates my district is home to eight biofuel plants and we are the top producer in corn and soybeans that provide feedstocks for these plants discussions of lower carbon emissions must include and enhance the use of biofuels It is an existing proven fuel source and must be part of that conversation. Since taking office, I've spent a lot of time traveling across my district. I've met with local officials, business owners, farmers, families, and many others. One thing I can tell you is that rural America is facing many challenges right now, made all the more evident by COVID-19. Challenges like limited access to capital, worker and skill shortages, aging infrastructure, limited access to broadband and diminished access to healthcare services. We should be doing everything we can to help these ag economies thrive and should be wary of taking actions that will create more challenges than opportunities. I am a little concerned about some of the efforts the majority has that don't recognize that biofuels have been an important part of the role in reducing our greenhouse emissions combines cannot run on electricity or wind or solar there remains an important role for liquid fuels to play in our communities i would also like to have the conversation about bioproducts of agricultural commodities i'm glad to see panelists that can speak to the work they are doing to diversify the value add of products coming from the farm as a vehicle for rural development i'm interested in learning more in that regard Taking care of our rural communities and ensuring that they have what they need to thrive benefits the ag economy, but it also benefits the rest of the country. If we can help meet those needs together, it is all of our constituents who will reap those benefits. I join the chairman in welcoming all of our witnesses, and we appreciate your time, and I'm looking forward to today's discussion. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I yield back. Thank
0: you, Ranking Member. I also would like to recognize uh, Ranking Member Thompson for any opening uh,
2: comments he'd like to make. Sure. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, and Ranking Member. Really appreciate you both, and thank you for convening today's hearing on rural America's renewable economy. Uh, as you've heard me say before, without the producers in rural America, our our cities would wake up in the cold, dark, and hungry. With that being said, I'd I would like to thank all of you here today for your role in powering rural America and for sharing your perspective and testimony with us. In Pennsylvania's 15th Congressional District, which I'm proud and honored to represent, there is innovation at every turn. whether that be biomass, renewable power sources or critical mineral research. Our universities and private institutions are contributing to significant progress within the renewable energy economy. And research is just as critical to help grow our new markets for bio-based products of all kinds, including both energy and advanced materials. For example, the 2018 Farm Bill contains provision that support research and development for cross-laminated timber and tall tall wood buildings. Developing materials like CLT provide forest owners new opportunities for renewable wood products and support rural communities while generating forest health benefits in the process. While I proudly uh, support research, innovation, deployment of renewables, I must stress that the farmers, ranchers, and landowners in my district cannot supply the world's food and fiber without 24-7 access to reliable and affordable energy. must also address the current makeup of my state's renewable energy economy. The Energy Information Administration found that in 2020, renewable energy resources generate about 4% of Pennsylvania's electricity. As this number grows, I'm committed to balancing the needs of the Commonwealth's families, communities, and producers who rely on natural gas-fired, coal-fired, and nuclear power generation with the needs of the innovators in the renewable economy that we're hearing from, <coughs> from today. With that, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I look forward to today's discussion and yield back.
0: Thank you, uh, ranking member Thompson. Uh, The chair would request that other members submit uh, their opening statements for the record so witnesses may begin their testimony and to ensure that there is ample time uh, for questions. To our witnesses, I am pleased to welcome uh, such a distinguished panel of witnesses uh, to our hearing today. Our witnesses bring to our hearing a wide range of experience and expertise. And I thank you all uh, for joining us. Uh, our first witness today is Emily Score, the chief executive officer of Growth Energy, which represents over half of all U.S. ethanol production. Since joining Growth Energy, Mrs. Miss Score. Uh, has led initiatives to grow the retail presence of higher biofuel blends across the US and launched Growth Energy's first consumer education initiative to redefine ethanol as a cleaner and more affordable fuel choice. Under her leadership, Growth Energy membership has grown to include 92 plant producers and 91 innovative businesses that support biofuel production. Welcome, Ms. Score. Our next uh, witness today is Mr. Jeff uh, Pratt, the president of Green Power EMC. Green Power EMC secures renewable energy resources for the broader family of 38 electric cooperatives in Georgia, which delivers power to approximately 4.3 million Georgians. In his role, Mr. Pratt leads efforts to source, evaluate, and contract for renewable energy projects Today, Georgia's electric cooperatives have approximately 1,600 megawatts of renewable energy in operation or under construction. Mr. Pratt also serves as the Vice President of Emerging Technologies for Orglethorpe Power Corporation where he leads collaborative efforts to explore, engage, and implement emerging technologies such as electric vehicles and other new technologies changing the energy landscape. Welcome, Mr. Pratt. To introduce our third witness today, I'm pleased to yield to our colleague on the committee, the distinguished gentlewoman from Missouri, Mrs. Hartzler.
3: Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And it is an honor to introduce Gary Wheeler. He is the executive director and CEO of the Missouri Soybean Association, the Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council, and the Foundation for Soy Innovation. And Gary and I have worked together for years. He is a very respected leader in agriculture in our state. And I feel confident that he is going to bring us many uh, very helpful insights as we look at renewables and the role that agriculture can play in it. So I'm proud to welcome Gary and thank you for being here. I yield back.
0: I thank the gentlewoman. Uh, Our fourth witness is Miss Jessica Bowman who is the executive director of the Plant-Based Products Council. The Plant-Based Products Council represents a broad range of companies who support greater adoption of products and materials made from renewable plant-based inputs. Ms. Bowman leads the organization's efforts to advocate for the expanded use of renewable plant-based materials, including through collaboration with early phase startups and Fortune 500 companies on their sustainability efforts and awareness initiatives. As an engineer and lawyer, Ms. Bowman plays a unique role in bridging the gap between today's bio-based innovations and policies that encourage their broader adoption. Welcome, Ms. Bowman. Now, I am uh, incredibly pleased uh, to introduce uh, our next witness from my own uh, district, Ms. Nan Stolzenberg, um, the principal consulting planner of community planning and environmental associates and a friend. Uh, Ms. Stolzenberg plays an important role in assisting small and rural communities in development of land use and environmental planning. Uh, Ms. Stolzenberg has a special interest in small town and rural planning, community revitalization, comprehensive planning, land use regulations, and public participation. In her role, she has been the principal consultant in over 70 communities and is one of 33 people nationwide to have received the Certified Environmental Planner Advanced Certification. Ms. Stolzenberg is also a member of my locally based Agriculture Advisory Committee. Welcome, Ms. Stolzenberg. To introduce our sixth and final witness today, I am pleased to yield to the ranking member, the gentlewoman from Minnesota, Mrs. Fishbach.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chair. It is my pleasure to introduce Randy Aberley, Executive Vice President of Agribusiness and Capital Markets for Ag Country Farm Credit Services, a financial cooperative that helps more than 200,000 businesses in North Dakota, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. Mr. Aberley is certainly an expert in the field. He received a bachelor degree, a bachelor science degree in agricultural economics, and has worked with Ag Country for over a decade. I'm so excited for everyone here to benefit from his experience and to hear more about how Ag Country has been involved in the renewable economy. Farm credit is so important in rural, in rural America as as an outlet for financing that might not otherwise be available compared with cities where big banks are plentiful. I know that they have helped a lot of family farms and businesses in my district, like Cole's Land and Cattle in Hutchinson and Matt and Erica Jensen's farm in Fergus Falls. It is important that we remember the real farmers and ag producers like them need to have a seat at the table in all proposed legislations and discussions, particularly as we begin work on the next farm bill. Welcome to the committee. Thank you. I yield back.
0: I thank the gentlewoman uh, welcome to all of our witnesses uh, today. We will now proceed to hearing your testimony. You will each have five minutes. The timer should be visible to you on your screen and will count down to zero at which point your time has expired. Miss score please begin when you are ready.
4: Chairman Delgado ranking member Fishbach, and members of the subcommittee. Thank you for the opportunity to testify today on the role of renewable energy in the rural economy. I'm Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy, the nation's largest ethanol trade association, representing plant producers and their innovative business partners. Ethanol production has long been an economic driver for our rural economies. The United States is home to 210 biorefineries across 27 states, That have the capacity to produce more than 17 billion gallons of low-carbon renewable fuel. Our industry is the second largest customer for U.S. corn growers and will purchase nearly $30 billion worth of corn this year to produce ethanol and an expanding array of bio-based products such as high-protein animal feed, renewable chemicals, and corn oil. Renewable fuels like ethanol remain the single most affordable and abundant source of low-carbon motor fuel on the planet and are critical to meeting carbon reduction goals today. Recent research shows there is no path to net-zero emissions without biofuels. Even accounting for the projected growth of electric vehicles, the Energy Information Administration indicates that the vast majority of cars on the road through 2050 will run on liquid fuels. Higher blends of ethanol can be used in our current auto fleet to accelerate our transition to a 100% renewable energy future. Put simply, America cannot decarbonize the transportation sector without homegrown biofuels. To meet the rising demands for renewable energy, we must first have a strong and thriving rural economy and biofuel industry. At a minimum, that means the Biden administration and Congress must ensure that biofuels are part of our transportation mix now and into the future. This can be achieved through a strong renewable fuel standard accelerated nationwide use of higher blends like E15, accurate carbon modeling of ethanol to better reflect the most current data, sustainable farming innovations, and carbon intensity reductions at our biorefineries, and incentives that provide producers with strong policy signals to further reduce our carbon intensity and expand to new transportation markets. A strong RFS will reduce carbon emissions and provide a steady market for U.S. grain. The annual blending requirements are woefully delayed. And in recent weeks, unsettling media reports indicate that EPA may turn its back on greater biofuel blending. It is critical for ethanol producers and suppliers that EPA immediately propose 15 billion gallons of conventional biofuels for 2021 and 2022. The Biden administration simply cannot meet its climate goals while rolling back low carbon biofuel blending requirements. We ask that the subcommittee help deliver this message to the administration. We appreciate the committee including nearly $1 billion in the Build Back Better Act to provide drivers access to more low-carbon, higher ethanol blends. This provision builds upon USDA's successful biofuel infrastructure infrastructure programs under the last two administrations. This investment complements nationwide move to a 15% ethanol blend, which would meaningfully reduce greenhouse gas emissions, the equivalent of removing nearly four million vehicles from the road each year. It would also create more than 182,000 additional jobs and save consumers $12.2 billion in fuel costs annually. To help realize these benefits, Congress must pass the year-round Fuel Choice Act from Representative Angie Craig to restore E15 summer sales. Through continued innovation, America's ethanol producers and farmers are using fewer inputs and improving efficiencies at the plant and on the farm. We are pleased to see voluntary initiatives in the Build Back Better Act that would help further reduce the carbon intensity of agriculture, which accounts for 50 to 65% of our life cycle emissions. As biofuel producers capture the value of low carbon farming practices, farmers would also have the opportunity to benefit in the form of premium prices for their commodities. The legislation also contains several important incentives to help ethanol producers further reduce the carbon intensity of their fuel and explore new markets. These provisions, along with some recommended changes, are detailed in my written testimony. To close, with the right policy environment, our industry can continue to decarbonize our transportation sector, from passenger vehicles to our aviation fleet. We stand with rural America, ready to assist Congress and the administration to achieve our nation's climate goals. Thank you for the opportunity to testify. I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you, Ms. Gore. Mr. Pratt, uh, please begin when you are ready.
5: Thank you, Chairman Delgado, Ranking Member Fishbach, and members of the com- uh, subcommittee. On behalf of Green Power EMC and 38 other member cooperatives in the state of Georgia. We really appreciate the opportunity to testify today. Um, I want to share with you uh, the growth opportunities that we found in renewable energy in Georgia and the challenges and uh, opportunities that that poses for rural America. My name is Jeff Pratt. I'm president of Green Power EMC and uh, our co-op serve about 4 million Georgians, uh, uh, which is uh, in there are about 900 similar cooperatives around the country that serve about 56% of the uh, mostly rural po- uh, areas of the country. In 2001, uh, the electric co-ops in Georgia were um, for, had a lot of foresight, and before it was popular, created Green Power EMC and focused on the procurement of renewable energy, mostly biomass energy and, um, and uh, hydro energy. Uh, since that time, though, in 2015, almost 14 years later, we uh, created our first uh, large-scale solar project in, in about 200 acres. Six years later today, we're, uh, we've are we committed to over 15,000 acres. That's about 15, I mean, 8,000% increase. To that end, um, you know, we've made uh, great strides in re-, re- uh, reducing our carbon footprint in the uh, state of Georgia through nuclear power and this renewable engagement. Um, but in rural America, most of our, uh, in, in Georgia, most of our solar plants are located in these areas where there are uh, challenges in competing land interests. So we work very hard to make sure that we're good uh, stewards of the land in those areas. And we do that in a couple ways I wanted to share with you. Uh, One of them is to make sure there's no surprises to those rural communities and make sure that we're very uh, courteous and uh, very uh, honor the the local farms in in meaningful ways. One of those is to create regenerative farming on the solar farm itself by putting sheep and managing vegetation with livestock and and sequestering carbon underneath in the soil of those facilities uh, as we do so. there are other challenges with uh, with renewable energy in the state of Georgia. And while we have one of the most robust transmission and uh, distribution systems in the country, uh, inter- the intermittent nature of renewable energy, especially solar in Georgia, creates challenges that will require investment and planning and dedication to make sure that we um, do not sacrifice reliability and um, reliability and affordability for all of our customers, which are very important, especially in those rural areas. Some of the uh, uh, challenges are going to require technologies that are just emerging. We're just learning how to engage and they're not cheap. Uh, some of the provisions in, in the uh, proposed legislation uh, recently, uh, include opportunities that would help uh, make some of that technology more affordable as it becomes uh, available. Uh, provisions such as uh, tax incentives. Tax incentives are very helpful, but in Georgia, we have uh, some difficulty uh, as not-for-profit utilities in extracting the full value of those tax incentives. So we'd be very supportive of direct pay. Secondly, $10 billion, I understand, has been uh proposed for to, to relieve debt burden and to invest in new clean technologies. All of those we'd like to have in our quiver of tools to help increase our emission reductions in the state. Um, I would like to say that uh, uh, we are very supportive of all the efforts that, uh, that, that the committee is uh, looking at here. We want to make sure that uh, they are, these, these efforts are affordable. Their efforts are, uh, do not sacrifice reliability and bring opportunities to rural America, which is a big part of uh, the areas in which our cooperatives serve. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Mr. Pratt. Uh, Next, we have Mr. Wheeler. Uh, Please begin when you are ready.
6: Good morning, uh, Subcommittee Chairman Delgado, Ranking Member Fishbach, Ranking Member Thompson, and members of the Subcommittee. It truly is an honor to testify before you on the renewable economy and what it means for America's soy farmers. I'm Gary Wheeler, Executive Director and CEO of Missouri Soybean Association, the Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council, and the Foundation for Soy Innovation. The Missouri Soybean Association, along with Missouri Soybean Merchandising Council and the Foundation for Soy Innovation are affiliates of either the American Soybean Association, which represents 500,000 soybean farmers on domestic and international policy issues, or the United Soybean Board, which invests in checkoff funds to advance soybean marketing, production, technology, and development of new uses. It may be obvious to the members of this committee that America's abundant supply of soybeans helps feed our country and the world. However, it is less known that U.S. companies now also offer approximately 1,000 soy bio-based products thanks to the versatile chemical composition of soybeans. When processed, soybeans are divided into protein and oil. Soy protein is around 80% of the bean and is primarily used in plant-based foods like tofu and in livestock animal feed, but is also an ingredient in plastic composites, synthetic fiber, paper coatings, adhesives, and more. Soybean oil, the remaining 20% of the bean, is one of the most versatile natural oils. Its molecular structure and suitable fatty acid profile can be used in many applications, from food use and cosmetics to asphalt and biodiesel. Bioproducts made from soy are sustainable. Unlike fossil fuel-based feedstocks, soybeans capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. In addition, most soybean acreage in the U.S. uses conservation tillage, which disturbs less soil and helps sequester carbon and cropland. Soy bioproducts also lower greenhouse gas emissions, reduce energy costs and exposure to tax chem, tech, toxic chemicals by workers and add credits toward LEED certification. There are also economic advantages to using soy in manufacturing and consumer products. This year, growers are harvesting an immense crop of 4.4 billion bushels. This abundance has enabled soy ingredients to maintain an historic price advantage over petrochemical equivalents and has helped reduce America's dependence on foreign oil. Soy-based products create jobs. USDA's most recent report on the economic impact of the U.S. bio-based products industry found that increasing demand for domestic bio-based products Added 470 billion and over 4.6 million in direct and indirect jobs to the U.S. economy. In Missouri, we partnered with Cole County Sheriff's Department to demonstrate that Goodyear soy tires perform so well that they meet the demands of law enforcement. Goodyear determined that soybean oil mixes more readily with rubber compounds, reducing energy consumption and improving tire efficiency. Goodyear is now increasing soy oil consumption as part of their commitment to phase out petroleum-derived oils from products by 2040. Another opportunity in transportation sector is shield, a soy-based concrete protector developed through a partnership among Purdue University, the Indiana Soybean Alliance, and the Indiana DOT. Poor is a non-toxic and provides long lasting concrete protection while replacing traditional sealants and eliminating reliance on harmful solvents. My Indiana counterparts recently highlighted this award-winning product at the UN Climate Change Conference in Scotland. As we continue to look at new markets, uses in soybean research, I wanted to highlight the unique relationship between land grant institutions and checkoff investments in driving innovation. In one success story, the University of Missouri and USDA Agricultural Research Service are joint owners of the patent for laic, and MSMC is the exclusive licensee. Soyleic is a non-GMO high oleic seed trait that can be incorporated in today's soybean varieties resulting in high oleic oil and meal. These products demonstrate that we are off to a great start. However, the federal government needs to invest further for the renewable economy to truly take off. First, Congress can urge GPA to fulfill its statutory authorities under the Renewable Fuel Standard to support American-grown soy-based biofuels. Failure to release-
0: Mr. Wheeler, I'm sorry, if you, if you could wrap it up in the next couple of seconds, that'd be helpful. Under the this, RFS,
6: man. created uncertainty in the biofuel markets, and this inaction continues to stymie the growth. The nation's 500,000 soybean farmers are unified in their effort to grow market opportunities. By providing the best raw materials to create sustainable bio-based products, we stand ready to work with this committee, Congress, and the Biden administration to help grow the bioeconomy, great jobs, and enhance American sustainability. I look forward to answering your questions and continuing this important discussion on the renewable economy thank you
0: thank you mr wheeler uh, Ms. bowman uh please begin when you are ready
7: good morning chairman delgado ranking member fishbach and members of the subcommittee i'm jessica bowman executive director of the plant-based products council Thank you for the opportunity to talk with you today about plant-based products and the role that they can play in a renewable economy in rural America. So with plant-based products, we can use a variety of feedstocks, from corn to soy to hemp, even agricultural waste materials, to make many of the products that we use every day. Plastics, textiles, personal care products, building materials, and more. And the vast majority of these products are recyclable or compostable at their end of life. Plant-based products present an immense economic opportunity for rural America. A recent report from USDA showed that this industry grew 27% from 2013 to 2017, bringing $470 billion in value to the U.S. economy and supporting 4.6 million American jobs. And these are often high-paying, quality STEM jobs, like chemists, engineers, and accountants but the overall U.S. bioeconomy accounts for less than 2.5% of the U.S. economy, so we're really just scratching the surface here. This industry also represents the future of American agriculture's role in providing innovations and solutions that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and also move us to a more circular bioeconomy where we're minimizing waste, using more renewable resources, and keeping those resources in use longer. USDA estimates that using uh, the plant-based products have the potential to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 12.7 million metric tons of CO2 equivalents per year. To to support growth of the circular bioeconomy and the plant-based products industry, there's a few ways that Congress can help. One is to make the plant-based products industry more visible through better data. One critical action that's needed and was actually included in the 2018 Farm Bill is the establishment of North American Industry Classification Codes, or NAICS codes, for bio-based product manufacturing. These codes are really key to the future success of this industry because they allow for effective and accurate tracking and analysis of the economic activity and growth of the industry. So we urge Congress to call for the administration to fulfill the 2018 Farm Bill mandate. It's also critical to make sure that the data regulators are using to assess plant-based products is based on best available science and modeling. Another opportunity is to modernize USDA's biopreferred program. The program has had a lot of success in its history, but we believe there's the potential to do much more. Uh, We think this program could gain household name recognition, much like EPA's Energy Star program, but it has a fraction of the budget, so it's really hampered in being able to fulfill that potential. And finally, helping communities develop essential end-of-life infrastructure. It's important for all products to have the end-of-life infrastructure that supports a circular path. Uh, but one significant opportunity that can really help tackle our waste management challenges challenges while also uh, generating quality local jobs is an expanding composting infrastructure. I mentioned that many plant-based products are compostable. They're compostable in industrial composting uh, facilities. So when those products are used in a food contact application like packaging, they present an opportunity to divert substantial food waste from, to composting so it's not contaminating the recycling stream or go... Going to a landfill where it contributes to significant landfill methane emissions. So the Compost Act, which uh, Congresswoman Julia Brownlee introduced in the House in July, uh, represents an example of how the federal government could provide financial resources uh, to help local communities NGOs, nonprofits, and the private sector uh, to build out composting uh, infrastructure systems that meet their uh, community needs. So we're eager eager to work with the committee on the best way to achieve that goal. I wanted to close by highlighting one of our member companies, Green Dot Bioplastics. This is a Kansas-based company. They're using plant-based feedstocks that are grown by American farmers to make more sustainable bioplastics that are used in everything from toys to car parts. And in rural Kansas, their employees are making two to three times the average salary in their community. And they're helping bring their customers, uh, helping their customers reshore jobs back to the US. That reduces production time, costs, and environmental impacts. So with Congress's support, the plant-based products industry can bring a new generation of innovation and jobs to rural America. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you, uh, Ms. Bowman. Next, uh, we have Ms. Stolzenberg, please begin when you are ready.
3: Thank you. Um, Good morning, everyone. My name is Nan Stolzenberg, and I'm a community and land use planning consultant with almost 30 years of experience working with rural communities. Today, I'm not representing any specific agency or organization but wish to represent the many rural communities I have experienced working with on the topic of siting renewable energy facilities. To grow the renewable economy, we must address the challenges related to siting of renewable energy facilities in rural areas. I will focus specifically on solar facilities and how the lack of land use planning, information sharing, community involvement and forethought relating to siting creates barriers to the renewable economy. There certainly is recognition that we need to develop renewable energy resources to meet climate change challenges. But at the same time, our efforts to meet that challenge should not diminish agricultural production or adversely impact our rural communities or our environment. Because facility siting is currently industry-driven, local communities usually are reactive to a specific proposal you have done or even know how to do any proactive planning to identify and locate appropriate sites that would work for all few communities have the resources to do a comprehensive analysis with a lot of public input to identify acceptable locations for siting. coupled with real or perceived lack of tangible benefits for host communities Poor siting that removes prime farmland soils, prevents other desired rural land use opportunities, and adversely affects other aspects of the rural economy, causes friction, and fosters negative attitudes towards renewable energy. Rural communities often resent their losses that benefit urban areas. Development of large-scale solar facilities are often at cross-purposes to other stated public goals, such as protecting prime farmland soils for agriculture or for woodlands to promote carbon sequestration. Although some facilities citing guidance and planning tools exist, they often remain unreachable for our small communities due to lack of coordination, staff, communication, and regional planning. But these challenges can be overcome with good planning. And what does good planning mean? Good planning involves identifying both natural resources and critical local features that need to be protected together with identifying locations that have the right conditions for a renewable facilities. Models exist for this natural resource-based type of planning, but they're not commonly or easily applied. It would be a planning process carried out at the local level to involve local officials and community members. This would build both acceptance and more assurance for approval processes. It would include development of much needed site site selection systems that can be applied broadly but fine-tuned locally with incentives and required performance standards. It should prioritize lands that are distressed or no longer usable for other purposes and identify sites consistent with other local goals and regional goals. Suburban and urban locations should receive a lot more attention as locations for renewable energy facilities, especially related to rooftop parking lot and building integrated systems and with incentives to support them prime agricultural soils, and forest land should be protected. I urge Congress to consider establishing programs and policies that address these problems. Some of these solutions could include to promote local planning and provide financial resources that assist communities in assessing their renewable energy capacity, and that involves local residents in a meaningful way to apply criteria identify appropriate sites and balance a variety of needs. We can collate existing planning models in renewable energy siting research to establish siting criteria and then incentivize them or require them in certain instances. We should require or incentivize use of dual use, that is like agrivoltaics in renewable energy siting and involve the farm community early so that they can also benefit from these renewable facilities. Agrivoltaics can couple food production, grazing, and use of native grasses and pollinator-friendly plants that meshes agricultural entrepreneurship with renewable development. And we need to promote truly community scaled facilities that provide more benefits locally and that are perceived to be beneficial to the rural community. I urge Congress to establish national policies related to siting of renewable energy facilities and to enhance local planning tools that consider the complex and multifaceted experiences, expectations, and values of our rural residents. We should be looking across states and carefully identifying and prioritizing suitable locations that balance smart land use planning in a way
0: that also develops renewable energy resources. It's
3: my hope you're... that by taking these steps, the renewable energy economy will flourish. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Next we have uh, Mr. Aberly. Uh, Please begin when you are ready.
8: Mr. Uh, Chairman, I'll start over. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Fishbach, and other distinguished members of the subcommittee. Thank you for calling this hearing today to discuss the renewable economy in rural America and allowing me to testify on behalf of Ag Country Farm Credit Services. My name is Randy Aberly. I am the Executive Vice President, Agribusiness Capital Markets at Ag Country Farm Credit Services based in Fargo, North Dakota. Ag Country Farm Credit Services is a member of the farm credit system. We are a cooperative owned by our customers. We provide financing, crop insurance, and related services to more than 20,000 farmers, ranchers, agribusinesses, and rural homeowners in western Minnesota, eastern North Dakota, and central Wisconsin. We currently provide over $8 billion in loans through our 37 branch locations and have nearly 600 employees. Ag country and our customer owners are deeply involved in the renewable economy in a variety of ways. Farmers, ranchers, and agribusinesses are some of the most creative and innovative people you will meet. Ag Country has been lending to the biofuels and alternative energy industries for over two decades. I have personally served as the lead lender in financing over 23 biofuel plants. Each of these plants are multi-million dollar enterprises owned by farmers and rural entrepreneurs. We are financing projects that reduce carbon emissions at these plants, which meet the low carbon fuel standards of California. country is also financing investments to capture waste landfill gas to power biofuel plant operations. Similarly, dairy farmers are utilizing anaerobic digesters to capture methane from manure lagoons to produce renewable energy, electricity, and renewable natural gas. Beyond providing loans, we have shown support through sponsorships and regenerative agricultural research to improve the carbon footprint of agricultural production. Ag Country is currently in a public private partnership with commodity and research groups, along with state funding to finance crop research and a small scale soybean crush facility in rural northwestern Minnesota. One goal of this project is to develop higher oilseed crops for use for feedstocks for renewable diesel and biodiesel production. The renewable economy offers great opportunities for farmers, ranchers, and agribusinesses, and Ag Country is prepared to support our customers as they seek these opportunities. Financing biofuels and other innovative approaches for farmers, ranchers uh, can have, can be challenging. The size, technology, and maturity of the business all impact how lenders can best support the effort. As lenders, we analyze different financial metrics when deciding on whether to finance a project. One of these metrics is recurring cash flows from operations. This measure helps determine if the project has the ability to repay the loan. Oftentimes, tax credits or incentives to invest in these types of projects are not enough to meet the required cash flow necessary to get these operations up and running to self-sufficiency. Financing startup business can be particularly complex and challenging, especially when new technology is involved. A project champion or sponsor needs access to financial capital, which may come from a venture capital partner, where both the risk and reward expectations are very high. Technology, processes, and products must be able to be replicated for broad acceptance in the financial markets. Congress could support new technology and startups by providing greater incentives as well as more certain and predictable revenue streams for these capital investments to entrepreneurs or sponsors in order to cover startup losses and loan repayment in the early phases of a project. Additional public-private partnerships can work with adequate grants and investments that provide liquidity until sustainable cash flows can be generated. From our own lending standpoint, we're doing everything that we can to make projects within the renewable economy work. Ag Country works with our customer borrowers to find reasonable solutions when plants do not materialize. As a farmer-owned cooperative, it is our mission to serve agriculture and rural America. These projects provide good-paying jobs, new opportunities in our rural communities, and other potential revenue streams for farmers and entrepreneurs. Agriculture plays a vital role in environmental stewardship, and we believe farmers and ranchers are part of the solution to the climate challenges facing us today. Thank you again for calling this hearing, and I would be pleased to respond to your
0: questions. Thank you, sir. Uh, At this time, members will be recognized for questions in order of seniority alternating between majority and minority members You will be recognized for five minutes each in order to allow us to get to as many questions as possible. Please keep your microphones muted until you are recognized in order to minimize background noise. I recognize uh, myself for five minutes. I want to um, direct my questions uh, to Miss Stolzenberg. Uh, You spoke about uh, rural communities lacking the resources to proactively identify uh, locations with the right conditions for renewable energy facilities, I think a very important uh, point to to focus on. I introduced the Rebuild Rural America Act with my colleagues, Reps Bustos, Craig, and Spanberger to provide consistent flexible use funding to rural communities for locally tailored needs. This type of funding could be used, I believe, for regional planning uh, for renewable energy, multi-use solar development, and more. I do agree it's critical that Congress provide resources to empower rural communities for projects that meet their needs. In your testimony, you, you talked about the a critical need for good planning, and you highlighted that there are models that exist uh, for this effort. Could you elaborate a bit more on uh, those models? And then as a follow-up, I would be interested to know how we could better promote from your vantage point those models.
3: Sure. Thank you. So the models really are based on use of um, tried and true comprehensive planning methods, which uh, are grassroots programs that involve the community in understanding and identifying their values. and, and But the technology part of it is usually a geographic um, information system where we uh, use the uh, map in um, mapped information to look at all of the resources in a community from uh, slope to um, wetlands and streams to prime agricultural soil. And you can very, using that technology, you can very easily identify and then apply criteria that, say, a solar facility might need to identify potential locations um, that address community-identified features, as well as the facility-identified features. And then through the comprehensive planning process, um, work with the community to identify locations that, again, meet that variety of local needs. So I think that it's both a planning model and the GIS-based model.
0: Thank you. And in terms of um, our ability at the federal level to promote and or, Um, provide resources and funding for these types of efforts. Are you aware of any current uh, federal programs that uh, have been utilized or can be utilized uh, for these sorts of efforts?
3: Not that I'm aware of at the very local level. Um, It's it's a huge need. Uh, Communities want to do planning and there's very few resources to help them uh, gain the skills or the staff or the ability to get them done. So I'm not aware of a program at the national level to help with
0: that. And, and separate and apart from potential um, funding sources, are there any other ways in which the federal government can support um, new renewable projects and new market opportunities uh, for farmers?
3: Well, as I mentioned, I think the, uh, the agrivoltaics is a great example of something that can mesh um, renewable energy and opportunities for new types of agriculture. Um, in my experiences, they have been resisted by the solar developers, at least around here, but there's lots of opportunities to mesh that, and that would grow community acceptance um, if it was contributing to the local food systems.
0: Right. Thank you very much. Um, I'll back. Next, we are going to go uh, to, I believe, uh, Miss Fishbach, ranking member Fishbach.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, and and I appreciate all of the testimony. It's been uh, I t- I've taken a lot of notes, so I appreciate the opportunity. But uh, um, mr abberly um, in your testimony you mentioned a project uh, that you've been working on in northwestern minnesota i think i might know the project you're talking about but uh, it is in my district and could you talk a little bit further about the project and um, how does this project uh, and by extension ag country and the other sponsors impact the renewable economy as well as the surrounding area economy
8: well, thank you, Congresswoman Fishbach. Uh, would be happy to respond to that. Uh, this project in Northwest Minnesota gives the local region an opportunity to add value-added uh, agriculture uh, through uh, continued research to develop the additional soy bio-products that uh, uh, our representative from the Missouri soy soybean uh, testified to, uh, as they develop more and uh, many uses of the soy soybean uh, and. Uh, It's able to uh, generate more revenue in them local communities, providing jobs, um, and uh, more revenue sources for them area producers. Uh, Specific to that region, um, there is a a need to uh, produce higher protein and higher oil soybeans for the markets for both the food-based product and for feedstocks for biofuel uh, uh, and, uh, and, and renewable diesel. And so this was an opportunity for our cooperative lending structure to use, utilize our core values, uh, and. Um be responsible to each other and our cooperative, uh, caring for ag in rural America, and play our role as a uh, lender for this project through a collaboration with uh, commodity research groups and commodity groups uh, along with uh, state funding to get a project up and running to continue this required research to get the commercial scale production on new products.
1: Well thank you very much and I, and I do know that that is quite a co- collaborative project there 's a lot of folks who came together, um, including a country to uh, to move to move that project along so I appreciate your um, involvement in that project and I will just uh, since i only but <coughs> Three minutes left, uh, uh, Ms. Gore. In your written test, in your written testimony, you listed uh, data on state level economic impacts of the biofuel industry, in Minnesota was near the top. Uh, the lion's share of that impact comes from my district. Um, I'm interested in your mention of the uncertainty as a result of the lack of year-round E15. Um, and delayed RVOs from the EPA. Uh, Can you speak to the effects that that uncertainty would have on future development and investment in the industry?
4: Certainly, Congresswoman. Thank you for the question. As you well know, in the height of the pandemic, uh, half of our industry was offline because of the drop in fuel demand. We are still getting our footing back as an industry. What we need is market stability and certainty and strong signals. The renewable fuel standard, as passed and intended by Congress, forces more blending of renewable biofuel into our fuel supply every year. We need those requirements to be set and upheld by EPA. Consumers, should have year-round access to a low-cost, low-carbon fuel E15 year-round. When we have year-round access to E15, when we have a renewable fuel standard upheld as Congress intended, that's how we start to unleash the power of biofuels. That's how we become, yet again, a thriving economy that can, in turn, make the capital investments required for continued decarbonization of our fuel and our ability to diversify the markets that we can play in, including potentially
1: sustainable aviation fuel. Thank you very much. And, and Mr. Aberle, um, can you speak to the effect that this uncertainty has from the financing perspective of it?
8: Yes, whenever there's a certain uncertainty and unpredictability to the cash flows of these companies, uh, is always a concern for lenders for us to, to provide the, the stability of uh, credit facilities to these ongoing businesses. And when them cash flows are disrupted through policies and and uh, other uh, uncontrollables, these companies have to react, and sometimes, uh, as was the case during the the pandemic, when they lost a lot of market share, and they had to shut down uh, production. uh, It just did disrupt the jobs and and uh, and the business. uh, And it made bankers more cautious about lending into the space in the future.
1: Thank you very much. And um, I will I will yield back my 20 seconds, Mr. Chair. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you
0: both for your answers. Thank you. Uh, I now recognize uh, Representative Axney for five minutes.
9: Thank you, Chairman Delgado. And as we work on solutions to address the climate crisis, it's absolutely imperative that we utilize the tools that we have in rural America and we take full advantage of the opportunities there to not just support our climate, but of course our farmers. So thank you for holding this hearing today. And then of course, one of our best uh, solutions we have uh, is the use of biofuels and in our transportation sector. Biofuels, of course, support good paying jobs um, in our rural communities. It's a robust market for our farmers and of course, address the climate issues that we're facing. So I'm thrilled to see that in the Build Back Better Act, my bill, the one that provides for a billion dollars towards the expansion of infrastructure for biofuels across this country, uh, will help uh, not just Iowans, but Americans. So Ms. Score, my question uh, first is to you, and thank you so much for being here and lending your expertise uh, to the committee. As Congress debates the Build Back Better Act this week, what kind of benefits can we expect from the billion dollar investment in biofuels infrastructure within the bill itself.
4: Congressman, thank you so much for all of your work to make sure that that infrastructure funding is included in the Build Back Better Act. As you well know, this would be the largest investment in higher-blend infrastructure we have seen to date. It really would unleash the power of biofuels. It gives us the ability to work with our retail partners to accelerate the market inclusion of E15, which is a lower-cost, lower-carbon, higher-value fuel choice for consumers. So this is an, an unprecedented, wonderful opportunity for biofuels, it's great for American drivers, and it's certainly great for the rural economy.
9: Thank you for that, and I'm looking forward to the Build Back Better Act getting put into law, and I sure hope that all my colleagues that are here today vote for it, because it's a billion dollars in biofuels uh, that we're talking about directly here. Of course, another top priority for me is making sure that we get E15 year-round. We just talked about that a little bit. And as you know, uh, earlier this year, a court case struck down the EPA's authority that had allowed year-round E15. Very thankful for my colleague, uh, Angie Craig, and her legislation to fix this issue um, to make clear that the EPA has the authority Um, That's legislation that I helped introduce. And once again, we talked a little bit about uncertainty earlier um, in the previous question, Ms. Score, but if we don't address this issue of EPA year round and pass our legislation to allow year round E15, how is that going to impact sales and the market opportunities for farmers?
4: Well, I appreciate the question. And again, thank you for your support for year-round E15. Uh, we agree this is a misguided court decision. And unfortunately, next summer, E15 is sold across 30 states. Eighty-five percent of those retail locations will not be able to offer for three and a half months next year their consumers a lower-cost, higher-value fuel. E15 averages about five to ten cents per gallon less than eighty than. Uh, standard 87 fuel. It's a higher octane. It's cleaner burning. It's better for the pocketbook. So uh, this is something that we've got to rectify. We appreciate your support. Absolutely. We cannot realize the full potential of low carbon renewable fuels without year-round access to E15.
9: Well, thank you. And those are some the sobering numbers that we all need to be keeping in mind here. Um, I'm also uh, you know, absolutely concerned that reduction of these E15 goals would impact our climate goals. You know, They run in tandem. Earlier this year, a Harvard study concluded that corn ethanol reduces greenhouse gas emissions by nearly 50% compared to gasoline, all while being produced, of course, by our great farmers and communities across this country who support those economies. So my last question to you, Ms. Score, is as we look for ways to decarbonize, how can we utilize biofuels both domestically and internationally to take full advantage of carbon benefits?
4: There are so many ways that we can better utilize uh, biofuels. And as you said, we cut carbon emissions in half relative to gasoline today. And with technologies that are available today, we can become, as an industry, net zero in terms of our carbon emissions. Uh, We need strong policy signals to show that there is a marketplace and a growth opportunity. Uh, We need a strong renewable fuel standard that blends 15 billion gallons of biofuel, of corn ethanol, every year into our fuel supply. We need year-round access to E15. We need infrastructure investments in terms of uh, to allow for higher blends to be sold in 50 states across the nation. And importantly, as the discussion in our carbon-focused world continues, we need to make sure that the carbon modeling um, and the measuring stick is fair. It reflects up-to-date science, and it accurately accounts for all of the innovation taking place at the plants and on the farms.
9: Well, you summed it up so well, uh, we've got eight seconds left here, but thank you so much, and I want to continue to work with all of my colleagues here as we advance biofuels across the country to help our farmers and address climate. Appreciate it. And
0: I now recognize uh, Rep Thompson for five minutes. And I recognize uh, Mr. Scott.
10: Thank you, Chairman
11: Delgado. And uh, I'm going to focus my questions for Mr. Pratt because his testimony highlights one of my primary concerns as we work to find the balance here uh, on the economy, the environment, and uh, especially uh, rural Georgia. Uh, your testimony highlights the majority of the land area ideal for solar energy facilities in Georgia, my home state is rooted in rural agriculture and that some communities have been challenged to find a balance between the competing interests of solar land use and traditional farming Uh, and i include forestry in that uh in that definition of farming i'm sure you're familiar with the uh, project in south houston county where uh, approximately 800 acres of uh, forest land was uh, clear cut that provided a tremendous amount of wildlife habitat that uh, is is no longer there Um, and uh, my concern is is that if we take the most fertile soil out there and uh, whether it be forest land or whether it be uh, farmland and we c- convert that into solar fields, what the net impact of, of using that more fertile land is on for, for solar fields versus uh, less fertile land. And so uh, can you speak a little more about the balance and, and the need to find less fertile land instead of more fertile land to put the solar uh, fields
5: on? Yes, um, yes, sir. Uh, thank you, Representative Scott. I think that's uh, an excellent question and I appreciate your service uh, to uh, Georgians. Um, I would say that uh, there's two, there, when you look at energy in general that we use, there is no free lunch, there is no, uh, there are always trade-offs in producing energy and environmental impacts and and that doesn't uh solar is included in that as you would point out with clear cutting of trees the fact is we cannot uh, uh, generate solar energy with shade you have to have clear uh group uh, uh, for location to the sun Um, I will say that we work hard to mitigate those efforts in Georgia, at least through uh, what one of the other um, representative testimony said, and that is through uh, agrivoltaics. And that really is uh, bringing farm and uh, bio uh, uh, mimicry back to the, the land that w- occurred there before, and uh, and that's through we have thousands and thousands of sheep on our farms, uh, solar farms going forward in the future. That is not the same as forest land, but it is a, a, a crop and it is a financial benefit for agriculture. And and uh, we hope to find those right balances and work really hard to do so.
11: Okay, you touched on some of the supply chain disruptions. Uh, that's obviously another issue that I remain extremely concerned about and i think that that everybody on the committee regardless of, of party is concerned about um, from um the the production of the solar uh energy and the other things that you're directly involved in can you speak to the biggest issues for uh this subject about your primary concerns with regard to supply chains and what you are seeing right now with regard to the construction development of of solar panels, solar fields, and
5: the other uh, areas that you're working in? Yes, sir. Those are extremely uh, uh, challenging areas for solar and other aspects of the utility business uh, across the country. For solar specifically, um, most of the uh, solar panels, uh, the components are produced outside of the United States, and much, much of that in China. And some of the uh, regulations and the supply chain issues associated with that country uh, are creating bottlenecks to receive the materials that we need to propagate more solar in the United States. But it goes beyond that. It's uh, trans uh, wire. It's uh, uh, substations. It's um, equipment that is fundamental, not only to solar, to the rest of the electrical infrastructure as well. Uh, bucket trucks, three years to receive a bucket <laughs> truck. Company today. So all of those things are very important. OK, my, my time has almost
11: expired, but uh, I, I appreciate you, Mr. Pratt. It does it does bother me to see uh, so much wildlife habitat destroyed uh, in the name of, if you will, the environment. And I do think that we need to, if we're talking about environmental environmental policy, we need to be looking at it from a whole not from a piecemeal standpoint. And so when you, when you tear down all that forest land, you know, you've got, you've got water, you've got wildlife habitat, you've got a lot of other area issues that, 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 that forest land is very, very good for. Uh, and when you get rid of it, um, you know, to replace it with solar panels, I, I think that, um, I think we would be better served if we were focusing on, um, less fertile soils in, in areas that we um, that we put those fields. So, thank you for your time.
0: Thank you. I now recognize Representative uh, Rush for five minutes.
10: I want to thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm delighted, Mr. Chairman, that not one, but two of our witnesses today are from cooperatives. Uh, I believe that co-ops are critical to putting resources directly into the hands of the population and that a firm belief was further confirmed by your testimonies today. While cooperatives are empowering, they are unfortunately underutilized. To that end, Mr. Pratt and Mr. Amelie, how do we encourage the use of cooperatives and specifically, given this sharp decline in the number of African-American farmers, how do we do so in areas with large minority population? And further, have you given, uh, both of you, any thoughts to how we may marry a cooperative type approach to both rural and urban ag?
5: Um uh, Representative, uh, this is Jeff Pratt. i'll uh, make a couple comments and uh, and then pass it on to Mr. averly. Um, first, uh, thank you for your question. Uh, much of rural Georgia is impoverished and and um, and challenged uh, and uh, much of the investment we're putting into those local communities provides very important tax revenue for those local um, local governments. so we're very glad to uh, make that happen. Uh, I will say that far as marrying the urban and suburban and er, uh, rural areas, much of the energy that's produced in those rural areas from these solar facilities, in, in my example, uh, is actually transmitted to uh, cost-effectively to the more urban areas where there are also African-American communities that benefit from that as well. For, when you think of uh, cooperatives in general, I would say that uh, cooperatives are engaged in those local communities they they're owned and governed by the citizens that uh, are in those communities so land use and, and diversity are very important and uh, we we uh, take uh, great strides to okay. make sure those work
10: Thank you sir thank you uh, M- M- Mr. Evelyn do you have any comments I would just
8: add a few comments from our perspective. Uh, One of our core values at our cooperative is that we advocate for our customers. And so uh, if there's a need out there in these rural communities, uh, being able to serve agriculture and rural America is one of our core values and our mission out here. And we're very purposeful about that. So if there is a need from a group of uh, producers or farmers that have a common vision, uh, we do look at uh, trying to care for ag in rural America and try to advocate for them to to meet their business goals. And so as a lender, we can only play a a certain role. But uh, as these groups get together and have a common vision, we certainly try to provide a a pathway for them to, to, to meet their objectives and to serve that community.
10: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. With that, I yield back the balance of my time.
0: Thank you, Representative Rush. I now uh, recognize Representative LaMoffa uh, for five minutes.
12: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'd like to direct this towards Mr. Pratt um, uh, with the issue with, uh, you know, generating electricity um, via renewables. So. Um, I come from Northern California, where we've uh, burned um, millions of acres of forest over the last few years, and so we have this material out there that already exists. We don't have to grow it. It grows on its own pretty much, especially when you look at four decades or so of non-management of federal lands, forest lands. Uh, We have approximately 170 million dead trees that that you don't count in the burned trees in the state due to drought and insect infestation and overcrowding of the forest lands. So what I'm getting at is we have a lot of material out there that needs to find a home, a much better home than uh, um, burning it via accidental forest fires or even slash burning when it does get around to get managed. So what I'm speaking of is having this material move to a good end, end use, such as generating electricity in a biomass plant. I wish we had much more of that in California, which wish we had a friendlier attitude towards it. Uh, Mr. Pratt, what's your experience with, uh, you know, the, the southern states also have uh, uh, vast forested areas and, and much crop that is taken off of them and much that is uh, converted into chip product of, of the waste, you know, wasted uh, material? We're not talking saw logs, we want to cut saw logs too because we need lumber. We need paper products as a byproduct, but we have a lot of material that isn't good for anything else other than either letting it burn in a forest fire or doing uh, controlled burns, which is only a little better, I think, in some cases than uh, as far as the smoke and CO2 output and such. Uh, Please talk to us about the uh, ability to convert more of this material into biomass and produce electricity, and have that be a green energy source.
5: Thank you very much, uh, Representative, for that uh, comment, or that question. That's a very good one, especially for Georgia, which has one of the largest harvestable timber uh, uh, crops in the country. Um, We uh, do have a waste wood facility that burns waste wood, as much as you said, insect uh, problems, or the waste slash that it results from forestry and we burn that facility in a boiler that creates renewable energy. Uh, there's been some questions about how cr- green that uh, method is. I would say that, uh, uh, for, for we believe it's uh, quite uh, renewable. And the reason is that when the forest product, as you mentioned, uh, waste and slash lays in the forest, it decomposes and creates methane. Methane is uh, 20 to 50 times more harmful to the environment than, uh, than carbon dioxide. So when we gather that waste and burn it uh, in, in a way that creates energy and usable energy, we're also reducing methane to carbon dioxide, which is 20 times better, and gaining some electricity from that that subs. Uh, subs- uh, that, that will offset uh, petroleum-based generation as well. So I think it's uh, a very uh, helpful uh, project and uh, something we ought to uh, fully consider.
12: Yeah, you make a great point on that. Uh, a rotting forest is creating or rotting any uh, organic material is creating methane, whereas you can control that situation when you're burning in a controlled a uh, high heat situation with very, very low output. So it ought to be looked at as a very green way of making electricity, because the other ways also have their costs of uh, environmental purposes as well. When you're talking solar panels requiring mining of uh, rare earths and materials like that, every, everything has a cost to it, and that's what isn't acknowledged around here in the argument. In uh, in the way it's looked at environmentally. And so when we have, you know, in my home state and yours, it sounds like too, we have already so much material that needs to be moved out of there to have a sustainable, healthy forest situation, one that's drought proof, insect proof, and we need to be doing this yesterday. So, uh, Mr. Pratt, how how friendly is Georgia towards looking at this material as a good source of electricity and that is a green way of doing so?
5: it is friendly toward that it uh, uh, georgia is but uh, it is uh, also challenged uh, because it's not um, as cost effective as solar in this case i agree with you that uh, looking at the whole economic picture is very important
12: yeah um, let me let me jump in on that ha, ha. Broad, more broadly. cost effective that's very important because we spend billions putting fire out in the west we spend uh, uh, a, a lot also on the alternatives as well of for green power. They're not cheap, none of these sources are cheap, but we have a material that will provide jobs in our backyard for the loggers, for the truckers, and taking that material that is now a waste product, that is now a methane producing product, as you mentioned, and one that is uh, uh, harming our air quality, our water quality, when that ash and such washes into our system, or in our streams and rivers and lakes in California. So when you add up the whole spectrum of environmental cost, you're looking at an issue that is very, very expensive versus, you know, the maybe the subsidies it would require to take the material from long distance to a power plant somewhere. I think the offset of that to the Forest Service, towards all those other things, when you put it all up, put it on a point scale system there, you get a big win out of this. So I appreciate the time and I yield back, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. Uh, I now recognize Representative uh, Bustos for five minutes.
13: All right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, And thanks for holding this uh, this hearing today. And and also thanks to our ranking member. Um, I am so excited about the opportunities for rural America and the role that we're going to be able to play and are, are playing already in clean energy. Um, really appreciate our witnesses here today who are testifying before us about how we're going to be able to execute on this successfully. Um, let, let me start with uh, biofuels. Um, obviously, the, the, the issue of climate rescue is, is perhaps the most pressing task of our time. It's a challenge that that will require us to use every tool at our disposal. One of those tools, uh, I'm very proud to say, is corn ethanol. And it's a fuel that that we know can cut carbon emissions in half in half compared to traditional gasoline and the congressional district that I serve in in central and western and northern Illinois, we have seven biofuel plants in and around this district. We grow um, a little bit more than a million and a half acres of corn every year. Um, It is critical that we protect the jobs that this creates, the livelihoods in rural America and that we put biofuels on a level playing field with with the other renewable fuels. And as as we continue to talk about the climate and we forge ahead, we we can continue um, talking about new and innovative technologies like sustainable aviation fuel and how that will will be a strong, uh, and really the need for a strong unified model across sectors and, and how we calculate carbon emissions. Uh, let me start with uh, my question uh, for, for uh, Ms. Score. Um, in your testimony, you mentioned that the Department of Energy's GREET model. Um, I think you all know that that stands for greenhouse gases, regulated emissions, and energy use, energy use in technologies. But that GREET model, how that's leading, a leading edge model for measuring the carbon uh, intensities of different fuels. Um, would you please expand on how a unified model like GREET would be beneficial to driving down carbon emissions in a meaningful way and specifically when it comes to biofuels policy in the motor vehicle and aviation sectors.
4: Absolutely. Making sure that a modeling used uh, to account for our carbon intensity accurately reflects in real time the most up-to-date innovations is critically important. As you stated, the Department of Energy and Argonne National Laboratory, through their GREET model, that's really the gold standard in terms of carbon modeling right now. It is updated every year. It has the most robust set of agricultural inputs to truly account for all of the practices and innovations taking place. And so we need to use that modeling, whether we're talking about the RF. You know, EPA hasn't updated its modeling in in 10 years. And also, very importantly, on sustainable aviation fuel, we need accurate modeling to make sure that we are competitive in the marketplace and we're eligible to compete for these new markets like sustainable aviation fuel. Right now, uh, in the proposed Build Back Better legislation, uh, we are, um, the legislation is putting US tax incentives based on a UN modeling agency and modeling that they haven't updated in 10 years, and it's woefully Inadequate relative to greet. So we very much encourage and support the use of greet as a gold standard uh, for all uh, decisions on our ability to compete in the marketplace and to be eligible. That's what we need to be able to be a thriving industry and to further reduce the intensity of our fuel and broaden the amount of of markets we're eligible to compete in. All right. Thank you, Ms. Score. Um, Let me use my remaining
13: minute and 15 seconds. Uh, to ship to uh, the electricity sector and and how renewables can can make an impact in rural America. Um, So rural electric uh, um, co-ops all around the congressional district I serve, whether it's Joe Carroll Energy or Spoon River co-op, serve tens of thousands of our community members with reliable and affordable power. Uh, Mr. Pratt, uh, the Build Back Better Act would allocate nearly 10 billion dollars for rural electric co-ops to reduce fossil fuel uh, related uh, debt and, and invest in clean sources of electricity. What would that mean for your uh, cooperative and others like it across the country? What technologies would that help unlock for your organization?
5: So, uh, it would help uh, buy down debt and stranded costs that potentially uh, could result from uh, mandates and requirements that might be required. Uh, it would also help us uh, invest in clean energy technology, um, and it would help us uh, look at mitigating the unintended consequences from some of this, which is batteries and other investments that are required to, to bring more intermittent resources onto the grid.
13: All right, I am out of town, uh, out of time, and with that, I will yield back. Thank you very much to, to both of those who answered my questions. Thank you, Mr. Chair.
0: Thank you.
14: I now uh, recognize Representative uh, Balderson. For five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you for the uh, folks that are here speaking today, and I appreciate you taking questions. Uh, My first question is for Mr. Wheeler. Mr. Wheeler, um, the United States currently produces just under 1 billion gallons of renewable diesel annually. The Energy Information Agency announced this past summer that domestic production of renewable diesel could reach 5 billion gallons annually by 2024. Currently, one third of soybean oil production in the United States is used towards biofuels. Roughly 8.8 billion pounds. If renewable diesel production estimates from the EIA hold true, and we see production multiply five times within a few years, I would assume that demand for soy oil will increase in a similar fashion. How is your industry preparing for this possible surge in demand? Uh, and my follow-up to that would be: Do you think this demand will have an adverse impact on other soybean oil applications?
6: Thank you, Congressman. Uh, well, I would definitely here in the Midwest. Um, we continue to expand our our crush capacity, uh, not just in Missouri, but in, definitely in uh, the states that surround us. Uh, we have several that's going into Iowa. Uh, we're looking at two here in missouri and then there's other states as well that's looking at it uh, into the southeast as well Um, you know as far as when it comes to meeting the demand um, you know farmers we continue to try to build this out um, and protect our current infrastructure within the biodiesel industry there's definitely going to be enough production as far as when it comes to soybean and the soybean oil and we're here to stand and
14: support it. Thank you very much. My next question is for Ms. Score um, and I'd like to ship gears to ethanol. As you know, the United States is the largest global producer of ethanol, producing 56 percent of the world's ethanol. In your testimony, you mentioned the future of domestic ethanol production and how the international market will play an important role in that. Can you elaborate more on the importance of having a chief agricultural negotiator who works on behalf of American agricultural producers and processors and why this position is so important to ethanol producers?
4: Um, There is a growing demand for low-carbon renewable fuels, not just domestically, but globally as well, and I appreciate the question. Uh, Typically, we export about 10% of our product. Right now, uh, Canada is actually our largest trading partner for ethanol. So it's incredibly important that we as an industry continue to be able to uh, grow, to provide our product not only to domestic supply as we look towards higher blends nationwide, but also in other countries that are looking to build their rural economies, keep gas prices affordable. Affordable and make sure that they can achieve their climate goals. And again, the solution for all of that—cleaner air, more affordable fuel choices—is uh, is going and, and boosting rural economies is going to be greater use of ethanol.
14: Thank you. My next question is for Ms. Bellman. I thank you also for being here. Um, you mentioned in your testimony the NAICS NAICS code, which was required for bio-based products in the 2018 Farm Bill has yet to be programmated. Do you know why this is? Uh,
7: We have been uh, working with the various uh, stakeholders in the administration who are working on this issue. Uh, It's it's extremely important for this to move forward. Um, Bio-based products Manufacturing is really lumped into broader manufacturing, Um, so you're you're not able to see trends, you're not able to see market growth where investment is needed. Um, So we would really call on Congress to to work with OMB, uh, USDA, and Commerce to get the Farm Bill mandate um, uh, moved forward.
14: Okay. And uh, is this an issue that the USDA can solve on its own?
7: I believe not on its own. Um, USDA needs to work with Commerce. OMB is also involved. They oversee the, uh, the, the interagency committee that considers all of the recommended changes to the NAICS code. So I think all of those, um, all of those agencies are critical to uh, moving this forward.
14: Okay. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, I yield back my remaining time. Thank you all. Thank you. And I recognize Representative Craig
0: for five minutes.
15: Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Ranking Member Fishbach, my fellow Minnesotan, for focusing on energy in rural America. Thank you so much to our witnesses uh, here this morning. I want to focus my questions today on biofuels and the role that they can play in helping to build our rural communities and the pocketbooks of hardworking Americans. Right now, when I'm back in my district, I'm hearing a lot about supply chain shortages and higher gas and energy prices, in addition to increases in uh, the price of groceries and other goods. I'm also hearing from farmers uh, who are wondering about all these rumors swirling about the RVOs and that the administration is considering. They thought they could expect robust numbers, not more relief for refiners. And I'm wondering the same thing myself, actually. It's clear to me, especially after hearing the testimony from Ms. Score and Mr. Wheeler, that we need to be investing more in the biofuels industry right now as we seek to address energy costs. Ethanol and biodiesel blends have traditionally saved money for consumers at the pump as cheaper, cleaner burning fuel options. And they drive rural investment which means more and better paying jobs in rural communities. But biofuels are also subject to policy decisions, just like the other fuel sources that Americans rely on. So I'd like to focus on the policy decisions in front of us now. First, the administration should immediately issue robust RVO numbers for 2022. This delay has gone on for far too long. Second, we should make E15 available year-round across the country. Ms. Score, thank you for mentioning my bill in your opening remarks, the year-round Fuel Choice Act. This should be passed as soon as possible by this Congress. And I'm glad you also mentioned the $1 billion in biofuels infrastructure, which I believe is so critical in the Build Back Better Act. Cindy Axney, my great colleague from Iowa, and I have been leading the fight to extend the biodiesel tax credit through 2026, and um, I think we have to move immediately. Because with gas and energy costs rising, we would be uh, fools not to address the role that biofuels can play in reducing price pressures for Americans across the country. With that in mind, I'd like to turn to Ms. Score for the first question. In your written testimony, you included a chart that demonstrated clearly that REN prices are not correlated with gas prices, which is an argument that we often hear from fossil fuel companies. With that in mind, can you speak to the role that biofuels play in placing downward pressure on gas prices and helping Americans save money on fuel and energy costs?
4: Absolutely, Congresswoman, and you mentioned the two things that are going to help us reduce the price of of fuel for consumers, a strong renewable fuel standard and year-round sales of E15. The more biofuel we blend, the greater our ability to reduce gas prices. This year, according to the EIA, the retail price of gasoline on average has gone up by a dollar per gallon. That is a hard hit for working Americans in all 50 states. So with a strong renewable fuel standard that that encourages and really requires more blending of low-cost biofuels, with year-round sales of E15. That's how we can really support drivers and make sure that we're managing fuel costs appropriately.
15: Let me just follow up um, your view moving forward with the regulatory certainty that would come from year-round sales of E15. How would the industry be ready and poised to provide renewable fuels across the country?
4: We're absolutely ready and poised to do that now. In fact, we've had three summers of year-round E15. Consumers have already driven 25 billion miles on this fuel. It is a fantastic fuel. It's a great value for the consumers. We simply need to return back to the, the, the marketplace that we had for the past three years. Uh, we're absolutely ready and able, and retailers, too, are anxious to be
15: able to offer this choice to their consumers. Thank you so much for your perspective, Miss Score. And, you know, your comments really do help highlight the important role that biofuels uh, play in today's renewable energy economy as we look to alternatives to traditional fossil fuels. Uh, As you know, I'm leading that year-round Fuel Choice Act to make sure that uh, access to E15, for all the reasons that you talked about, to lower the cost at the pump, decrease the carbon intensity of our transportation sector, and support family farmers and the biofuels sector. I'll continue to focus on the role that they play uh, in the renewable economy of rural America. Thank you so much, Mr. Chair, and I yield back.
0: Thank you. Uh, I now recognize uh, Representative Feenstra for five minutes.
16: Thank you, Chairman Delgado and Ranking Member Fisher. Uh, My district leads the nation in biofuel production, making it a pillar for Iowa's rural economy. According to uh, the 2021 report from the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association, Iowa produced 3.7 billion gallons of ethanol and 351 million gallons of biodiesel in 2020 alone. Additionally, the industry supports over 40,000 jobs. Ensuring that our biofuel producers are prioritized through strong renewable volume obligations, RVOs, levels uh, is not only critical for the industry, but it's also my many constituents who engage with the economy built on its success. Uh, Ms. Score, how has the lack of the RVO announcement inhibited the biofuels industry?
4: Thank you for the question, Congressman. Uh, You know, as I talked to you, we're still in the mode of recovering and getting back on the road to recovery from COVID in a point when our fuel demand nationwide was cut in half. Uh, And so we absolutely need some certainty and stability and clarity in terms of the marketplace opportunities. This is required not only for us to get fully back on our feet, but for then in turn to to, uh, for us to have the capital investment required to continue R&D so we can continue to decarbonize our fuel and diversify the co-products that we're able to provide across America.
16: Can, can you, uh, Ms. Score, can you share your vision on how biofuel production and the use uh, fits into the future clean energy format?
4: We are already an active participant in our nation's climate strategy. I would say the state of California, with its low carbon fuel standard, biofuels account for 80% of the credits in California's low-carbon fuel standard. Uh, So we are a low-carbon renewable fuel plant-based homegrown here in the U.S. We have the ability to do so much more by use of higher blends nationwide to make sure that we've got modeling that accurately reflects all of the innovations taking place on the farm and at the plant. So we have the ability to make sure that the 270 million cars on the road today are using a low-carbon fuel. And with a strong industry, we can also do the R&D to expand into hard to electrify spaces like sustainable aviation fuel.
16: Yeah, uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, Ms. Gore. Thank you for those comments. I believe exactly what you said, the future of biofuels and renewable energy is strong. And we're hearing today uh, through these testimonies, uh, testimonies that this is the case. And as you noted, uh, Biojet Fuel Research Act that I'm working on would create a working group to analyze the future of sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, very important. have another area as renewable ec- uh, ec- as the renewable economy grows, it's important that the federal government provide updated and accurate data on life cycle emissions, such as through the Greek model. Uh, Ms. Gore, are there any changes to the Greek model that, you would, that we'd benefit from or that the biofuels industry, industry should know about?
1: Uh,
4: you know, one of the wonderful things about the GREET model is that it is updated every year, and there's an incredibly robust data set, a lot of inputs going into the modeling uh, specific to agricultural innovation. So we would like to see that standard of carbon modeling used in every uh, in every policy where we're talking about incentivizing low carbon fuels and rewarding uh, companies and, and and private sector for producing low carbon fuels. So we absolutely support using that and applying that in really any any. Conf, uh, conf context.
16: Yeah, well, thank you. I I fully agree with you. Biofuels like ethanol, you know, are low cost and low carbon solutions, and they can be carbon negative in in the next decade. I mean, I just look at carbon sequestration that we're looking at in Iowa uh, for biodiesel and ethanol plants. I mean, there's so many things that are happening right now. Uh, An announcement for the strong RVO levels will encourage investment and innovation uh, in this already proven industry that deserves uh, and will create decreasing uh, carbon today and I'm very passionate about this thank you for for everyone that is uh, for your testimonies and um, I look forward to working with everyone as we uh, further go down this path thank you
0: thank you I now uh, recognize representative Plaskett for five minutes
17: thank you mr. chairman and thank you to the witnesses who are here this has been very enlightening and thank you for your research and the work that you're doing in this area Uh, Mr. Wheeler, wanted to ask you a question. Um, Can you talk about what role an extension service can play in educating farmers on the benefits of bio um, economy?
6: Thank you, Congresswoman. Um, You know, one of the most important things that extension program can do is that very thing, is to educate. And one of the main things that that we're lacking uh, throughout the United States for our land grant institutions are resources. So one of the main focuses that uh, that we focus on here in Missouri and the surrounding states, specifically, is on the research side, and making sure that we carry out that not only the land grant institution mission and its vision, but also the mission and vision of its very farmer and its checkoff. Um, so it's. I know it's very important to a lot of states I know it is here in Missouri and we continue to grow that effort and be laser focused in that effort to uh, bring in additional resources but as well as uh, find ways to reach uh, those producers and
17: And what difference do you think that reach could make on their businesses
6: I believe uh, well specifically it's getting the farmer to us that's one of the very difficult things that we have because as any farmer uh, they're very independent and they're all small businessmen and women so there's a lot of folks that actually struggle with that to be able to reach out but the ultimate goal through the extension program on a county basis is getting that research and that information to those uh, businessmen and women so they can make uh, more informed decisions to the very point that you're referring to
17: Thank you, and I know that the farmers in the Virgin Islands would appreciate that. Uh, this is a question to any one of the witnesses. Uh, my district and other remote areas of the United States have developed energy plans to move forward further away from relying on petroleum for power and fuel. The non-contiguous areas of the country and other remote areas understand the burden of high energy costs, um, being isolated, having not having scale, not being able to connect to other areas. One proposal to address this in the Caribbean region is the Renewable Energy for Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands Act, H.R. 2791, which would create a USDA grant program for investments in renewable energy, energy efficiency, energy storage, smart grids, and microgrid projects in territories of the United States. Can any of the witnesses speak to the importance of developing and using renewable energy sources in small, rural, um, remote areas?
4: I'll go ahead and start, Congresswoman. Thank you for the question. Um, I think it's it's mission critical that, that uh, all consumers have access to renewable energy sources, whether they're in an urban environment or a, r- a rural remote environment. Um, for you know, On behalf of the ethanol industry, we're very proud that we're able to uh, provide renewable fuel that is low cost and affordable for all communities. Uh, that's one of the reasons that we want to see greater use of ethanol to extend our fuel supply um, and make fuel supply more stable and also more low cost. So uh, I appreciate the, the question.
6: congresswoman gary wheeler um i think one of the main things it goes back to there's a lot of us that's referred to as the hbip but it comes back to infrastructure and the resources that can be provided uh, to those regions Uh, infrastructure throughout the entire united states whether it's biodiesel or increase e15 uh, it really boils down to resources being laser focused in making sure that those dollars
8: are being spent where they need to be spent.
17: Thank you. Mr. Aberley, did you have something you wanted to add?
8: The only thing I would add is that when you talk about investment and research to to design and build out the successful technology platforms, for whether they're micro-scale or large-scale projects, there has to be a path of proven technology before other stakeholders are willing to invest in that. And uh, providing dollars for initial scale and and demonstration-scale projects is valuable in identifying that technology pathway to be replicated uh, to larger stakeholders.
17: Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for the time. Mr. Chair, I yield back.
0: Thank you. I now recognize Representative Davis for five minutes. That was actually great. You were right on the edge of time.
18: I mean, I was waiting for you to yield. I would have taken those last two seconds. Ms. Plaskett uh, yes, I, I do want to say thank you <laughs> unfortunately I want to say thank you to ranking member Fishbach, and uh, <laughs> fortunately to uh, Chairman Delgado for having this hearing today to discuss uh, important renewable uh, renewable energy production issues in, in rural America and the work that our ag producers are already doing to reduce emissions. Uh, this administration though is headed down a dangerous path as it continues to pass up opportunities to uphold the Renewable Fuel Standard and support America's ethanol and biodiesel producers. Uh, I've been proud to help lead initiatives to strengthen and restore the integrity of the RFS alongside my friends and and my Biofuels Democrat and Republican co-chairs. My colleagues on this committee, ranking member Fischbach and Mr. Feenstra, Uh, have also been key in our efforts to hold this administration accountable. And in June, I I sent a letter along with my Republican colleagues to President Biden regarding the rumors that the administration was considering a nationwide waiver of the RFS to cut demand for more combined gallons than all those cut during due to the small refinery exemptions issued by the prior administration. And we encourage the president to keep his 2020 promises to rule America and actually uphold the law. Now, we continue to wait on the RVO and have yet to receive a response to our letter, which is actually concerning. I I hope that this is not an indication of the administration's unwillingness to stand with America's farmers. And further, in March, I sent a letter with my Republican colleagues to the USDA encouraging the department to quickly provide assistance using existing funds to biofuels producers for COVID-related market disruptions secretary vilsack responded to that letter in august stating that an update to the pandemic assistance for producers program at the usda would be provided by labor day however we're still waiting 11 months into this administration and no biofuels producers have seen any relief uh mr chair i request unanimous consent to insert into the record the three letters i referenced
0: without objection
18: thank you madam ranking member do you object never
12: I'm
18: thinking about it. Thank you. First question, Ms. Score. great to see you again. And I want to know, has any prior administration considered retroactively cutting the RVO in the way this administration is rumored to be considering?
4: Thank you, Congressman, and thank you for all your leadership as a member of the House uh, Biofuels Caucus. Um, No, the rumors that we have heard that this EPA is looking to reopen the 2020 blending uh, requirements for RVOs, that's unprecedented, and we believe there's no legal authority for the agency to do that. As you said, we need to get these renewable blending obligations out. They need to be at at Congress's intent of 15 billion gallons of conventional blending. So we're still waiting, to. Mr. Wheeler, what do you think?
6: Congressman, it's it's unprecedented for sure, and just want to say greatly appreciate all your leadership and your your work um, down in, in Illinois, and it's good to see you as well.
18: Uh, great to see you, uh, Ms. Score. Uh, do you believe the biofuels industry is better or worse off under this administration?
4: Well, as, as we've said from the outset, the first real test of the administration's commitment to follow through on, on many of Mr. Biden's comments stated on the campaign trail is with the renewable volume obligations. We have yet to see those. We are anxiously awaiting. Uh, that's going to be the, really the first test to show that they are committed to low carbon renewable fuels that can be used in our current auto fleet.
18: And, and, and this is our test right now, Ms. Score. This is the test of the administration. I mean, These are rumors. But a lack of response to letters coming from members of Congress and a lack of response of, to questions coming from your industry, it, it, it only leads us to speculate, right?
4: Um, spe- speculation and uncertainty, and that's not what our marketplace needs right now. So we, you know, we're, we're already well past our 2021 blending obligations. We've got to get 2022 out so that we get back on track, uh, which is something that the administration had committed it would do at the outset, the beginning of the year.
18: They committed... They campaigned to be elected on keeping the promise to America's biofuels producers and upholding the RFS. And all we get right now is silence. Uh, That that to me sounds like an almost, and hopefully this hearing will help change that, but it sounds to me like it's almost a broken campaign promise. And I I will tell you, uh, we we here, we Republicans who have sent these letters, uh, we will hold this administration accountable. So, What can this administration and we in Congress, Ms. Score, do right now to provide certainty to your industry?
4: What we need is to get those renewable volume blending requirements out. They need to be at 15 billion gallons. We need to restore year-round sales of E15 so we get back on track and we can use more biofuels. They're good for the rural economy. They're good for the
18: American driver. Thank you. I yield back my two seconds.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Excuse me. I recognize... uh, (laughs) representative kamek for uh five minutes thank you
19: <laughs> <laughs> well thank you mr chairman thank you ranking member Fishbach, and to all our witnesses for being here today as well as virtually it's been noted here several times already that our agricultural producers and businesses are some of the most entrepreneurial forward-looking people out there today and i think it's important to remember that this entrepreneurial innovative spirit not government directives, is pushing American agricultural operations to make these new choices, like a dairy just outside my district uh, that is making the choice to construct and operate a digester. Or as is the case with one operation within my district leading the way in developing a biomass facility to uh, energy with zero emissions that can produce electricity, heat, and high quality biochar and diesel from wood waste. In a state like Florida, wood waste is plentiful, especially after a storm. Not only can this plant operate connected to the grid, but it can also operate as emergency support for critical infrastructure when other energy sources have been knocked offline. In a state like Florida, a plant like this one and others can provide a lifeline for critical infrastructure in the wake of a hurricane or other disaster. As the ranking member of Emergency Preparedness Response and Recovery on the Homeland Security Committee, this is an issue that is very close and near and dear to my heart. Great synergy here for what we're talking about. This is a great example of private capital and innovation coming together in rural America to identify an opportunity that has the added effect of helping to protect our environment for generations to come. We need to find ways to continue to encourage this private activity and innovation. Now, I know that we've kind of circled around this and you've answered this a few different ways, uh, but Mr. Iberly, and I hope I'm saying that right, I hope I'm saying that right, can you talk a little bit about the federal policies and whether they help or hurt in the search for predictability in the marketplace as we're looking to finance these projects. And my follow-up would be uh, the uncertain nature of future cash flows needed to finance a project. I know you've talked a little bit about this and Ms. Plaskett hit on this as well, talking about proven technology and the pathway for stakeholders, oftentimes a pilot program. But just getting that off the ground, can you talk about some of the challenges within financing and what we might be able to do to uh, clear the path?
8: Well, thank you for that question, and Congresswoman. Uh, we've been involved in the space for a long time, and I was fortunate to to uh, be involved in the build out of the ethanol uh, industry uh, by financing greenfield. Uh, uh, construction and new plants. Uh, from that perspective, the, the federal policies that are in place, you know, really do put a floor on the business plan to give the the entrepreneurs uh, courage to move forward, and it also gives them the, the lenders more courage to to share or partner with them on developing new technologies to develop that pathway. Um, it may not be the optimization of that business plan, but it does provide a floor uh, where they can uh, address the capital needs and the liquidity that that they're going to need for a successful project. And so by having federal policies in place, uh, it does give them kind of a a rock to start their foundation on for a successful uh, biofuel or renewable project.
19: Is there particular programs in which you have seen success, and how might we be able to expand on those to make them better, more efficient, hit our intended targets, et cetera?
8: Well, the RFS was an example of one great one, because there was a market out there that was already built uh, that needed to be served. And so they knew when they built the project that there would be a place for that uh, product to go and and be developed into the market. Uh, And so that was the the stepping stone to uh, build out all these ethanol plants across the country.
19: Thank you. Uh, Mr. Pratt, you mentioned that intermittent energy production can be challenging to grid operations. So what kind of activities do you undertake and equipment do you install to compensate? Now, are these mitigation efforts complicated, expensive, or both? And can you provide examples of renewable energy sources of energy where they come without the problem of intermittency?
5: Representative, thank you very much for your question. so yes, uh, first, uh, your second question first, uh, intermittent resource or inter- resources, renewable resources that are not intermittent would be, uh, biomass, uh, waste biomass, as, as you mentioned, uh, digesters can be that as well. Uh, so you make good examples with those. Um, solar energy is more intermittent and, uh, and so is wind. Uh, uh, we also have, um, uh, geothermal. Thermal out west, and that can be also more uh, consistent. Uh, so, what we're doing is looking at different uh, pop, uh, technologies like batteries and grid enhancements and controls technology to help mitigate intermittency.
19: Excellent. Thank you so much. And with that, I yield back.
0: Thank you. And I recognize Representative Baird for five minutes. You might have to unmute.
20: Sorry about that. I thought I already had. Anyway, uh, I really appreciate uh, Mr. Chairman and uh, Ranking Member Scott for holding this session. And I really appreciate the witnesses being here and the technology that they bring and share with us. But my first question then goes to Mr. Pratt. Um, you know, I really enjoyed your testimony and hearing about your organization and how they've worked to bring techn- technological enhancements uh, to your members. And I feel that the nation's rural electric co-ops do have an important role to play in the renewable marketplace. And uh, it is interesting to me how you use the RAUS program to help support your efforts uh, for these facilities in Georgia's grid. But anyway, I was reminded of the interest in my district and the state to leverage uh, the generation potential of anaerobic methane digesters. So this potential to harness the co-product of one of our nation's animal protein industry is often stymied by the difficulty and cost of getting these kinds of operations connected to the grid. So, Mr. Pratt, uh, do you have any insight on how the livestock producers could be incentivized or we could be more supportive in helping them to connect the output of these digesters into the rural
5: electric grid? Yes, sir. Uh, Representative Bart, I appreciate your question about uh, digesters. First, um, I think there is a lot of potential for digesters, and there are quite a few in the United States, but um, they're, they um, aren't as inexpensive to produce energy from as solar energy today, so they have some uh uh headwinds for utilities in that respect uh that does not mean they're not important in in the larger picture i think they can be very helpful there's been some um difficulty in maintaining reliability of those facilities uh however uh, i think the technology continues to change and there will be opportunities for both uh, uh low interest loans from the USDA and RUS as you mentioned I think that uh, making sure they have access to the similar tax credits that other forms of renewable energy could be helpful, and uh, I think it could also be very beneficial for those agricultural and rural communities to dispose of waste in a very uh, economical and helpful fashion and produce some energy while we do that.
20: That's great. I think uh, I think we have some food waste that we could probably incorporate into that same system as well as, as you know, the the. Uh, uh, forestry industry and some of that would be a feedstock for these kinds of digesters. So I think that has potential and I really appreciate your comments. Uh, next, I wanna to go to Mr. Wheeler. Uh, you made reference to the poor shield product that can be used to extend the longevity of our nation's bridges and concrete. And that's sort of exciting to me. And uh, you did that work in cooperation with the soybean farmers in Indiana, as well as Purdue University. So I'm just going to give you the opportunity to um, to expand on that product and its use and what spurred you to to make that kind of uh, discovery.
6: Sure. So thank you, Congressman. Um, well, it was actually developed in Indiana with partnership with their farmers in the checkoff. And so it's a perfect example of where uh, the checkoff can really partner on a public, private uh, position and develop new products of bio-based products. We specifically use Poor Shield here at the Center for Soy Innovation here in Jefferson City, Missouri, on a lot of our sidewalks, but we also participated um, in a pilot project uh, with the Soy Transportation Coalition, also provided uh, through our checkoff programming and our farmers, and we partnered with several different uh, municipalities here in the state of Missouri and across the Midwest to showcase what Poor Shield can actually do and lengthen the life of not only concrete, but also asphalt. So this is just one of many projects and ideas that have come to fruition over the past uh, several years uh, that's produced from this little thing we call the soybean, which is magnificent. So thank you for your passion as well as our passion as well. And there'll be many more products that will be coming out into the future. Uh, And just thank you for the soybean farmer and our checkoff. So thanks for the question.
20: Thank you very much. And it looks like I've got about 10 seconds left, so I yield back my time. But Ms. Score, I was gonna ask about uh, the reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 46% by using ethanol, but I'm out of time and so uh i yield back
0: thank you uh before uh we adjourn today um I, I want to invite ranking member fishbach to share any closing comments uh that you may have
1: well and i just want to say thank you so much it, i think it has been a very uh, helpful conversation and i think that we need to continue to make sure that we are um Recognizing and promoting the biofuels as something that is, uh, it is a part of um, our entire ag economy and part of um, that uh, carbon emissions reductions. And so we need to continue the conversation. and I appreciate uh, uh, Congressman Davis uh, talking a little bit about what is going on with within the administration. What about
20: science, where are we at on the
1: well, oh, I'm. <laughs> Please mute. But, but I will just say thank you so much for being here and appreciate the conversation, and we will continue the conversation. And thank you, Mr. Chairman, for um, putting the committee together, the meeting together today.
0: Thank you, Ranking Member Fishbach. Uh, as we bring this hearing to a close, I would uh, want to again express my gratitude uh, for the expertise provided today uh, by our panel of witnesses, along with the work that you all do to keep our rural communities uh, thriving. I represent the eighth most rural uh, congressional district in the country. Uh, so to be able to facilitate a conversation like the one we have had today, it gives me hope that this committee can continue to work for rural America and find common sense solutions that improve the economic, social, and environmental well-being of our communities. Under the rules of the committee, the record of today's hearing will remain open for 10 calendar days to receive additional material and supplementary written responses from the witnesses to any question posed by a member. This hearing of the Subcommittee on Commodity Exchanges, Energy and Credit is adjourned.